0: Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. The coronavirus pandemic continues, and so does lockdown. Before the crisis, many of us used the internet for our day-to-day and month-to-month tasks. Banking, paying bills, ordering goods, filing taxes, and so on, and so on. During the crisis, more tasks will be done online by more people. And no doubt, this trend will continue into the future as we add new tasks and new people learn to do them online. Now, some of the business we do online requires a digital identity. We must be able to trust that identity, trust that it is safe and reliable. Moreover, we must collectively believe that there's value in having an online identity, that it doesn't lead to further commodification of our actions of ourselves and that its proceeds, especially those which come from our data, are returned, at least in part, to the consumer. Moreover, past breaches call into question the security of digital identities, as do concerns about the surveillance state and surveillance capitalism. But there's no going back. Indeed, we may not want to go back. The question then is, can we protect our identity online? On this episode of Open to Debate, I talk with Debbie Gamble, Chief Officer, Innovation Labs and New Ventures, Interact. You'll note that Interact is a sponsor of this program. While that hasn't affected the editorial direction of this episode, indeed, it has perhaps raised the bar for adequate critical intervention. It is something to keep in mind as you listen. How are you doing online and offline?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks, David. I like everybody adjusting to our new norms. But relatively speaking, I'm trying to do my best to be healthy, stay engaged, be inspired, and I'm finding it strangely productive at home. So, all things considered, I'm great. Thank you for asking. Well,
0: I've also been strangely productive, and one of the, <laughs> the side benefits of recording this by distance instead of in the studio, I mean, we lose some audio quality, but I can drink beer instead of coffee so
1: well there you go (laughs) if anyone
0: is wondering why the episodes are suddenly much better so one of the things that we found is that our digital eyes while important before seemed immediately and immensely more important so before we get into the sort of deeper dive into the benefits and risks of online identity can you talk to me a little bit about why we need one and, and what that looks like
1: People like myself, we spend most of my professional time talking about digital disruption and an innovation and the need to look forward. And the situation we find ourselves in with COVID-19 is actually disrupting everything about our lives. So this crisis is actually shining a spotlight, in some cases, on the need for further digitization, certainly, of some aspects of our lives. And digital ID is one key component to that. If your listeners are thinking about what are we talking about when we're talking about digital identity, simply put, the way that I try to think about it is it means that we are able to prove who we are without being present and doing so as we typically do in person. And it means being able to do that and engaging in the digital activities that we find ourselves immersed in working from home, et cetera, without having to prove who we are that we do typically using physical documents like our driver's license, for example. So digital ID, think about it, is the simplest way of proving who we are without being in person, presented in a given experience.
0: So I come at this emerging technology and and the very idea of a digital identity from two perspectives. One is someone who's used digital services for many years, especially banking, and who thinks that there's a lot of potential here to make life easier for folks, make things more accessible. And at the same time, someone who's deeply concerned about the expansion of the surveillance state, surveillance capitalism, Mm. and data breaches. I mean, I've been a victim of data breaches, as I think have most people who (laughs) spend time on the internet. If someone's listening and saying, well, I've been part of past breaches, And I'm concerned that by the level of a driver's license or a passport or my border data, the risk seems extraordinarily high. How do you manage something like that?
1: Those points are really important. And we all need to be vigilant about managing our identities, whether that be digitally or even physically, for that matter. And it's an interesting kind of paradox, actually, the kind of notion of, a you know, is a digital identity less secure And therefore, do you have more exposure with the digital identity than a physical identity? You know, many people in the industry look at how do we address those concerns? And what is it that we need to do about ensuring that we are not more exposed online? But it is definitely something that we all need to be super vigilant about. And doing simple things like not sharing passwords, changing passwords helps. But... You know, when you think about comparing the digital identity with the the thing that we typically use to prove our identity is our driver's license. That's the credential we most use. And when you're asked to prove your age, et cetera, for example, going into a liquor store, you're actually sharing way more information about yourself when you provide a driver's license to somebody than if you just had to prove somehow digitally that you are of the age that you can legally purchase alcohol, et cetera. So, it is a bit of a paradox, but that is not to underestimate the concerns or even some of the challenges around ensuring safety and ensuring that privacy is not compromised. And certainly lots of technology that can help with that as well.
0: I mean, are we talking about this sort of idea of of having a centralized source or database that feeds into a number of different services? Or are we talking about having? different services you know so would my driver's license be connected to my passport be connected to my banking be connected to my tax records which presents to me a much greater liability that if one is compromised they're all compromised versus having a bunch of different accounts people probably think if they think at all of Estonia which has a sort of single portal Mm But are there models around the world that are best practice models that provide security through distribution, for instance?
1: Absolutely. And what we're seeing is this kind of standardization around the world, a number of different standards that you know, you can have this interoperability without having the honeypot that you're describing, one place where everything accesses and that could present vulnerabilities. Companies like Interact. The company I work for and many companies around the country are working to kind of figure out what are the right models, what are the right standards to embrace so that you have a flavor of interoperability. But there is not one place where everything is stored. That really needs a kind of collaborative model of the public and the private sector. That's the kind of philosophy that we embrace at Interact. It's very unlikely that there will only be one solution to digital identity around the world. But what is very important is that there are some standards that are embraced and there are best practices, as you said, that are embraced to ensure that those service providers are providing capabilities that deliver the convenience that many of us take for granted with the security that you require. So you mentioned, you know, you use digital access capabilities, you log on to your financial institution, you do so leveraging some credentials, you follow some best practices, those institutions follow security practices to ensure that engagement is secure. But I don't think there is a kind of one size fits all one place that is certainly not the model that we support.
0: Nor would I want one. And in fact, I mean, some people listening to this might be a little bit surprised to hear this from me, but I prefer it to be a mix of public and private for the simple reason that I don't trust any one sector on its own. I mean, I want there to be tension and competition and cooperation and options for people rather than having one central database run by government or one company with all your information. I mean, I don't think
1: Absolutely, anybody yeah. prefers
0: Perhaps. that. That again, the question then becomes about liability. I've used online banking since before I went away to school, I think. Pretty much from its infancy, I was an early adopter of online banking. I've never had an issue with online banking. I've filed my taxes online pretty much since you could. I was an mm-hmm. early adopter of that. I've never had a problem with the CRA. I've never had a problem with my bank. That said, I know people who have been involved, for instance, in the Life Labs breach of data. And we right. think that some sorts of data are, are untouchable. Then we realize that our medical data ends up sometimes on the internet, on the dark web, and God knows where. How do we address the issue of liability?
1: Well, I think before you even kind of think about the liability in that kind of scenario, you're actually looking at different levels of security to provide that convenient experience. So, you know, the levels of security of a username and password, for example, is one level. But when you add to that additional capabilities around security, fraud management, monitoring, all the things that you would expect, for example, at an institution like a financial institution, those best practices and standards need to be embraced across the board. That's part of what, you know, organizations in Canada, like the CIO Strategy Council or DIAC, which is the Digital ID and Authentication Council of Canada, those entities are allowing the public private sector to work together to kind of talk about how do you ensure that even if it's a private company that's using your data and providing logging capabilities, to give you convenient access to something is also embracing you know high security standards at Interact we did a piece of research last year and we talked to Canadians about how they thought about digital ID and and overwhelmingly we got the response that yes we believe it's an important aspect of modern society as we all get used to those conveniences but at the same time we do things like share our passwords you know there is certainly a Kind of best practices, what's the right model for the industry? But it is also very much about consumer education. And ensuring that not only do we have the right kind of capabilities and tools that provide access to everyone so that, you know, when we are thinking about this from a country perspective and economy perspective, those capabilities are available to everybody. But there are best practices and standards that are used and that we understand as a society how to follow some of those best practices and not put my password on a sticky in the house (laughs) or
0: Yeah, my position is that if you're going to participate as a corporate or a civil entity in digital identification platforming, then you ought to be held to account. You ought to be held liable for breaches. You ought to have extraordinarily high levels of security. We ought to be able to communicate with your users in plain language so they understand what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, as you say, though, if then someone goes around and uses the same password for everything and they're scrabble go password gets compromised and therefore their cra password gets compromised then we've got a bigger problem and you know at the end of the day it is everybody's responsibility as much as it is anyone's because you're only as strong as the sticky note on which your password rests i suppose indeed
1: we're different people to other different people my access to a social media account I better not be using, as you say, the same credentials and usernames and passwords that I'm using to access my checking account or my savings account or to log into my mortgage. So I think these things have to be fit for purpose. And there's great conversations, as I said, happening across the country as to what are those standards and how do we ensure that we can enable Canadians to participate and engage digitally and be confident their privacy is not being compromised.
0: I'll do a very quick public service spot for people who are listening. Get yourself a very good password manager and have a different password for everything. I cannot stress this enough. There are best practices that you can look up from sources you trust. I highly recommend you do it if you didn't do it today, then do it tomorrow because it makes a huge difference. I sort of routinely check on this sort of thing and a combination of lucky and successful in resisting attacks but let's talk a little bit about privacy I mean for me, there are two broad concerns as we move along with the issue. One is obviously protecting our data, but also controlling who owns it, who has it, what they can yeah. do with it, and who benefits from it. One of my concerns around the rise of surveillance state and surveillance capitalism is that the data we produce becomes fodder for other people to profit from, and what we're left out of that. Can we use digital IDs to protect people's right to access, control their data, and also control who profits from their data?
1: I think the first place to start in that is to ensure that we have an ecosystem that, in Canada that actually supports the kind of creation and usage of secure ways to authenticate ourselves. And then from there, you can kind of layer on, okay, well, if I have the ability to access and provide my authentication into, you know, whatever service it is, and then from there, you can actually think about layering on top of that, great, that how do I ensure that my data is only being used by the people that I want my data to be used by? There are various parts of the government policies being explored around our privacy and data rights, and I'll leave that conversation to somebody much more so than myself, but you really need an ecosystem that's available to all Canadians to be able to actually have the capability to securely authenticate yourself first. And then you can figure out the best ways of, all right, who am I willing to share my data with? You know, am I okay with that being commercialized? How do I benefit from that? How do I ensure I'm not exposed to it, et cetera? But you can't do any of those things without a digital ID system.
0: So is it then the case that the digital ID system precedes subsequent controls? I mean, I suppose, is it the case then a good... Secure digital ID system allows you then to potentially control who has access to what and what they do with it?
1: I think they're in kind of lockstep. You know, you need a mechanism to be able to securely authenticate who you are, authenticate that you know you are connecting and engaging in the right entity that you believe you're engaging with. So I think they're actually parts of a bigger question. And then you can kind of think about data rights on top of that. I'm not sure you have to get everything in the digital ID ecosystem right before you can layer on top of that. But I do think they are very much connected.
0: I mean, I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, but in my head I have red lines. For instance, I very strongly support the idea of digital identification for banking, for filing taxes, for driver's license, for health services, and so on and so forth. I personally would draw the line at elections and voting because that is the one final frontier where if there was a breach, the costs are so extraordinarily high that you might never really be able to recover. But how far do we extend the digital authentication regime? I mean, are there limits to it? Or are we talking about digitally identify yourself for anything that requires ID?
1: I think that's a massive societal question. I think we have to balance Convenience and the relevant experiences we're trying to deliver to everybody with a secure mechanism that you're not compromising things that are core to who we are and who we are as a nation. So, I mean, how far does that go? That again, I don't think there is a a honeypot that allows you to authenticate who you are but also tracks who you voted for. That seems a little extenuous to me. But I think there are big questions for us to get our head around.
0: I think about this from time to time, but I'm especially thinking about it now because we're talking in the midst of a pandemic, Yeah, in which case digital identity is probably saving lives. Now that sounds maybe ridiculous on the face of it, but I don't think it is. I mean, to the extent that you're able to stay home and not have to go out and hand over a piece of hardware to someone, a license or whatever it might be, or even interact with that person, you're safer, right? I'm thinking about all the things mm-hmm. I'm doing from home. You know, typically I do for convenience, but right now the stakes are much higher. So I'm inclined to think that that's utterly critical. And even as I'm talking and listening to you talk, I'm starting to think maybe there is a degree to which it could apply to democracy as well, given that elections might be risky in the months to come.
1: The big questions. I don't disagree that we kind of have to get our head around this. This is a new norm, right? We're in this crisis. Parts of the world right now, there's elections happening during the COVID pandemic. And, you know, you kind of have to think about, well, what can we do to make that safer? I think safety and privacy are not mutually exclusive. We have to think of both of those things. I'm not sure that society is ready to give one up for the other. This is definitely a time when we need to think about what we can do to make ourselves safer, while we can still enrich those experiences. There are things that perhaps I don't know about you, but I didn't order my groceries online until this crisis happened. And now I'm thinking, well, why wouldn't I do that in the future? But I'd still have to go in and have a login and authenticate, be able to pay and do all of those things securely. And I think, you know, there is definitely opportunities for us to be able to Take this experience and think about, well, okay, how would we apply it to other parts of society? How do we apply it to transportation? How do we apply it to health? How do we apply it to education? If you think about the kind of new cohorts starting college in the fall, why wouldn't they be able to onboard digitally? There are ways for us to improve on the way we do, whether it's deliver healthcare, whether it's education, transportation, that a safe, ubiquitous digital ID ecosystem could enhance the lives of Canadians.
0: I agree. I mean, I think there'll be some things you could never replace or at least not replace adequately. For instance, being in a classroom with a teacher physically present, but picking up your student loan. Now, I remember standing in line for my student loan years ago to pick up my (laughs) check. And I, 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 honest to God, I mean, how many hours and how much of a pain that was, I wish. I was thinking about this the other day in the context of booze. Because I think one of the things that will happen is the pandemic will lay bare how silly some of our past rules have been and unnecessary. Exactly. Because the brewery said to me, well, we can come and we'll deliver you booze. Thank God. I'm in Ontario. But we have to see you. (laughs) They didn't look at my ID, but they had to see me. And I said, okay, well, fine. Then I'll wave from the balcony. I would have much preferred to punch in a couple of keys and have that identify me and let them leave the beer at the door. And I would never have to go anywhere near the delivery person in this circumstance.
1: Absolutely. We're worried about health concerns at the moment, but you're absolutely right. It will shine a spotlight on some of the norms, you know, maybe post-COVID. We'll be like, no, there's obvious areas for improving that experience. My company, we believe that. That's why we've had a strategic focus on digital ID for the last few years. And you know, my industry's payments. So we've been doing that, as you said, you log into your financial institution digitally. And so we're taking some of that experience and some of the capabilities that that industry has had for years and thinking about how do we apply that to other parts of our lives.
0: I'm curious what the corporate landscape looks like when it comes to managing both competition and relationships with government. I mean, assuming that these technologies, as you mentioned, are going to be rolled out by different people in different Mm -hmm. places and in different ways, which I think at the end of the day is for the best because it creates ideally some tension, but also better technologies. How, How deep is government involved in this sort of thing?
1: They're deeply involved. And I think we, as Canadians, we want them to be deeply involved. When you think about the credentials that you use to prove who you are and that society trusts. Those core credentials come from your government. You know, so when you're born or when you become a citizen, when you get a passport, when you get a social insurance number, when you apply to get a driver's license, when you get a health certificate, when you open up a bank account, etc. So if you think about the prosperity value chain, meaning throughout your life, there are things that you do and that you typically start with a government credential to prove who you are so what do we use as canadians to prove who we are the most we use our driver's license and you get a driver's license assuming you've got some other mechanism to prove your identity that your government has provided to you so government has to be involved without government being involved the private sector can only go so far collaboration between The public and the private sector, we certainly believe, is the way to kind of build an ecosystem that is ubiquitous enough to be able to service all Canadians.
0: I'm usually very nervous about public and private partnerships, certainly on some things. But on this, I'm less so because I actually want there to be sort of distributed capacities and opportunities and tensions across different parties because I certainly don't want one group running the whole show who gets to access digital identity and who doesn't? Is there a potential that a well thought out digital identity regime could extend to more people than the current analog one? Because as always, there are winners and losers and people who are left out. But I'm wondering to what extent we can bring more people into this than we typically can.
1: Well, I think that's the goal. We need to be able to extend it to all Canadians. You know, there's studies like the mckinsey study or a piece of work that diac did last year was focused on the value of a digital identity to you know the viability and the health and well-being of a country typically measured in gdp and so you want to be able to have that capability you know, if we're talking about digital identity as a means for society to improve and enhance how we interact, how we behave, how we work, how we play, how we engage with each other, then it needs to be made available to everybody. You know, we're lucky enough to live in a country that has resources that a majority of the country, you know, if you think about technology and Internet access We've got a good portion of the population that has access to that, but there are some people who don't. So the telecommunications industry has been focused on this. Other parts of the market have been focused on it. But I think to have a really vibrant ecosystem, it has to be inclusive to all Canadians.
0: You mentioned the telecom industry. I mean, obviously for this to work, there needs to be buy-in across industries. I mean, you have to have access to a device, to the internet, if you're going to have a digital identity right if you are homeless or you're extraordinarily marginalized don't have access to these things it's going to be a problem so i mean there's a bigger conversation to have about accessibility of basic services like the internet and and where that happens and so on is the corporate end at least within your industry more about the technology of databases and protocols and so on and so forth or is it about the infrastructure of actual access points i mean what does it look like
1: it's about both of those things You know, I can tell you from my company's perspective, very much part of our DNA, if you like, is about inclusivity. So we are Canada's domestic payment network, and that means that we have to service all of Canada. Our kind of approach to that is we service all of the Canadian financial institutions all across the country, whether that be the large corporates or the cooperative movements in the credit unions that service smaller communities and perhaps rural parts of the country and remote areas. I think it has to be very much a collaboration between the private sector and the public sector. It has to touch on some of the things you just mentioned. So it has to touch on the infrastructure and the operation and serviceability of that. It has to be able to engage in multiple distribution channels so that it actually serves the purpose of allowing Canadians to engage securely so that they can experience those more convenient, easier ways of doing things, whether that be as a consumer, a member of society, or even a you know a small or large business.
0: I say this for the benefit of those who listen regularly and who know a little bit about my politics. I mean, I come at this from the perspective of someone who wants a pluralistic market space and public space i want there to be competing powers and authorities and groups and individuals and so on and so forth my concern is when power bundles up is this sort of thing at the corporate level competitive or cooperative between companies
1: so there has to be cooperation on think about even electricity right so Was there a race to get kind of the infrastructure around the country, Telecommunication space would be the same, banking would be the same. And then once that standard is in place, once you have the infrastructure and you've got the channels available, then the private sector can compete on the experience that leverages that infrastructure. So it has to be both. You have to collaborate to get that flavor of ubiquity. You have to collaborate to get to a standard set of capabilities so that you can have interoperability, so you can achieve that inclusiveness. And then once that's agreed on, then you can kind of imagine and create the kind of services your company can differentiate themselves with. So there has to be a flavor of collaboration. And certainly our philosophy at Interact is that that has to be a public-private sector collaboration. That's how we'll get the best possible outcome.
0: I'll close out on this question, which occurs to me I probably should have asked from the start, but it's just come to me now. Is this infrastructure? I'm trying to think about the nature of the public-private collaboration, the partnership, which I have mixed feelings about because obviously on some things I want it, I don't want the government to be running construction companies. So there's going to have to be people who in the private sector who are building bridges, for instance, and so on, and banks, for instance. Where does this fall in that sort of infrastructure service spectrum?
1: it probably falls in both the standards to build the infrastructure and the enablement of the service. Mm. And so if we go back to this notion of I actually get my certificates that prove my identity from the government. So if I go in to open up a bank account, I need to prove who I am and how do I do that? I use some credentials that the government has issued me. And so if we can digitize those credentials with the government, leveraging some interoperability and a common set of standards and that the government can provide those digitized credentials across the country to other public entities and to the private sector and then the private sector can leverage those to build on top of them to create the relevant convenient offerings that Canadians will want whether that be a better way to log into order my groceries or get a test from my doctor, or to update my driver's license, or to get a marriage license, you know, any of those services that society needs to be able to provide. It certainly has to start with some digital credentials that you could argue is that's maybe the infrastructure with some standards, and then layer on top of that, the kind of service offerings and experience that a digital Capability can provide.
0: Lest anyone label me as a lousy socialist. I do find a lot of this compelling, and I think, you know, something that I work out week to week in talking to guests is the sort of complicated nature of trying to understand how we move forward into an increasingly digital world in a way that is inclusive and throws up some tension so that nobody gets to determine everything and everyone has to sort of cooperate and compete a little bit. Uh, I find this sort of thing compelling. I'll close on this question. Has the pandemic changed your perspective or your thinking on any of the questions related to the development of digital identity?
1: It's actually shone the spotlight on the need for us to get moving on this. I think whether that be to ensure that you know, we can engage securely around health, whether it be disbursements of funds, whether it be, you know, just actually logging into, as I said, order my groceries or, or you buying your beer. So I think what COVID has done is really kind of accelerated the need for us to be able to bring that capability to market. And in fact, you know, we do that today. It's not like we're at stage zero. It's kind of shone the light on us being able to do that across the country with some flavor of common engagement and standards. I'm very hopeful about that.
0: Yeah, me too. I mean, it's funny, you mentioned disbursement of funds. And I I just started thinking that one of the challenges of this moment is that we need to get money to people. We need to get money to people immediately. And one of the pushbacks from government and some experts and policymakers is, That's harder to do than you might think. We don't have the infrastructure for it yet.
1: Canadian digital ID set of standards will help. So I think that would be my kind of rallying cry with my colleagues at the CIO Strategy Council across the industry at DIAC and at the government levels is a Canadian digital ID set of standards would actually help solve some of those problems.
0: Well, that's going to leave me with much more to think about but for, for a different time because we have run out of time. So my thanks to you for joining me today and uh, continue to stay safe. And my thanks to everyone who's listening from home or wherever they might be, although it's probably home.
1: It's probably yeah. <laughs> home. Uh,
0: continue to stay safe, to wash your hands, to social distance, to stay home, to listen to public health officials. And while you're home, take half an hour today to review your internet security protocols, go change your passwords, get yourself a password manager, and we'll see you back here in a couple of weeks. Thank you.
1: Thanks.